Welcome to Tech Talk Online, sponsored by Stratford University. You can listen to Tech Talk Live in the Washington, D.C. area, Saturday mornings from 9 till 10 on the following frequencies. 1500 AM, 1045 FM, 1035 FM HD2, and 1039 FM HD2. We thank you for listening to Tech Talk Radio. Interfacing complete. Please stand by. Now downloading Tech Talk Radio with Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Tech Talk Radio, it's technology you can understand. And now here are Dr. Richard Schertz and Jim Russ. Welcome to Tech Talk Radio. We are in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. I'm Dr. Richard Schertz. And I'm Jim Russ. Lots of stuff going on in technology as always. Well, today's show ought to be a blast. We're going to talk about Alessandro Volta in Profiles in IT. He's an Italian physicist from the 18th century who developed the first electric battery. He also discovered methane. We'll also take a trip down memory lane and talk about how GPS works and how it relates to the air traffic control system. And of course, it was a huge, huge mailbag. There's a letter in your mailbox. There he is again, mm-hmm. sleeping at the switch. There you go. There we go. We got an email from John in Annapolis. Dear Doc and Jim, my Windows computer is very slow. It's not too old, but it just slowed down over time. How can I speed it up again? I really don't want to have to buy a new computer, John in Annapolis. Well, John, there are a few things you can do on the software side, then things you can do on the hardware side to speed up a machine. Let's go, let's, let's go down the list, actually. Uh, the first thing I'd do, make certain your PC is free of viruses and other malware. If you've got, if you've got malware or viruses on the machine, it real, will really slow it down because it's doing a lot of stuff in the background that it shouldn't be doing. So you want to do a virus scan, a malware scan, to make certain you're clean as a whistle. Next, you want to uninstall all the programs that you really don't need. And you know how you just sort of build up programs over time and, you know, you think they're good, but then they're really not good and you don't use them. So there's really a nice program out there. It's called the Geek Uninstaller. The Geek Uninstaller. You can go to geekuninstaller.com and you remove any programs that you don't need or never intend to use. The nice thing about Geek Uninstaller, it does a better job of removing programs than the native Windows remove a program utility because sometimes that utility leaves some remnants of the program there if something has been changed to the configuration. So that Geek Uninstaller is a nice option. Now you want to remove any non-essential programs in the Windows startup. You know, every time your Windows boots up, you know, programs like to always be active and running, so they try to put their code in the startup, so in the startup sequence, so that you they're they're started right up, even though you don't do anything. And if you've got too many programs loaded in the startup, it'll slow down your machine. So, actually, you can you can actually do use a program called Auto Runs. Auto Runs, it's freeware from Microsoft Syst Internals, so you know that Auto Runs is safe and it's fully compatible with Windows. And what you do, you, you run auto runs, and it shows you all of the things that load up automatically when you boot up your Windows machine. And then on that list, you simply uncheck the ones that you don't want. So the programs that you really don't need, there's no reason for them to be auto-loading. Just uncheck them, and auto runs will remove them from the startup list automatically for you. And then that actually will take care of that. Then finally, you want to make certain that you've got the latest updates on your Windows machine. So that's everything you can do on the software side. 
There are only a couple of things you do on the hardware side. Make certain you got enough RAM. You need you definitely need eight gigabytes of RAM. So if you if you're sitting there with four gigs of RAM, you want to beef it up to eight gigs of RAM. And that will definitely speed up the machine. And probably the biggest impact on machine speed you can have is to go from a traditional hard drive to a solid-state hard drive. Because the traditional hard drives have a magnetic platen that spins around, and there's a certain lag time to get data off the disk. Whereas a solid-state hard drive is actually... It's actually um, non-volatile memory that can be accessed, you know, very quickly, and it's much faster. And so if you would replace your old hard drive with a platinum hard, a magnetic hard drive with a solid-state hard drive, you'd see a big difference. Uh, that That's about um, the only op- options you have in terms of software and hardware, and I hope one of those works. Best of luck there, John. We got an email from Michael in Philadelphia. Dear Doc and Jim, I finally switched from Windows XP to Windows 10. I actually like it. However, I hate having all these notification messages pop up at random times in the lower right-hand corner of the screen. Is there a way to end that, Michael in Philadelphia? Well, those are annoying if you just have to let that thing pop up all the time. It's always ringing and popping. I, I actually... I actually set my, my my computer windows up for um, nighttime mode, so just nothing pops up. But there's also another way you can do that. You can go to something called Focus Assist, and Focus Assist will 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 you know manages all of the notifications. So what you do, just go to Settings, click All Settings, and then there's a little search search um, box there, and just write Focus Assist, search for it, and it'll. And then, and then click on the, the result there. When you open up the Focus Assist screen, you want to click Alarms Only. And, you know, there are basically three choices, all notifications or some notifications or Alarms Only. Now, if you haven't set up any alarms, and clicking Alarms Only will prevent all notifications from coming out. Now, note, you'll, you'll still get a pop-up if you get an alarm, but if you haven't set any alarms, nothing's going to come out. Now, you also could uh, select priority only, and that would allow high priority messages to come through rather than all messages. And so that may not be bad as long as there aren't too many of them. So you, you can sort of play with that focus assist to decide what level of notification you're comfortable with. We got an email from Bob in Maryland. This is, you know, I don't know. Jim's got a, a real a real uh, uh, fan here. Dear Doc and Jim and my buddy, Mr. Big Voice. <laughs> Ever since I noticed when Jim doing his normal, regular job, he's so professional and perfect. His professional traffic reporter performances are incredible. He's fast, never makes a mistake. And then he comes to Tech Talk Radio. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yes, but... <laughs> But there's always a but. <laughs> then it comes to Tech Talk Radio. Although in my case, I prefer the more relaxed Jim on Tech Talk. <laughs> Maybe it's because he has been has been influenced by Mr. Big Voice. Right? I get, he wears me out is what happens. So <laughs> I, I'm low energy level when I'm here. Or maybe Jim just has some sort of evil twin or split personality. He might be right there. It's incredible the difference between Tech Talk Jim and Traffic Reporter Jim. <laughs> oh my goodness. 
This is a little scary. I know. I love. I the think sh- I may need, need somebody to start my car when I leave. You, you know, I love the show, and whenever I miss it, uh, even with the corny jokes, your faithful listener, Bob in Maryland. Well, the corny jokes are supposed to be there. That's the whole idea. <laughs> that, Bob, thank you. That's very kind of you, and thank you for listening on both stations. <laughs> we got an email from Peter in Fairfax. Dear Tech Talk, I keep hearing about people having their Twitter accounts shadow banned. I, okay, I need to know. I haven't heard shadow banned. Shadow banned. I do not know exactly what that means, but I'm wondering if maybe my account has been shadow banned. Hmm. I used to receive dozens of followers every day, and now I only receive two or three over the next. I only receive two or three in maybe a few weeks. Hardly anybody retreats anything that I send out like they used to, but. So something has changed, but I really don't know what's changed. Peter and Fairfax. Well, Peter, Twitter is sneaky in this area. Twitter has a set of published rules called terms of service that users must follow that in order to keep their accounts in good standing on the platform. If you violate one of their terms of service, you'll typically receive a written warning or you might get a short-term suspension of the right to use the feature that Twitter thinks you're that, that Twitter thinks you're abusing. And if you keep violating the terms of service, they might permanently ban you from Twitter. From Twitter, however, there are times when a user will tweet things that Twitter does not think is good for the Twitter community. Oh my god! But it actually doesn't break any rules, so they can't kick you off for violating the terms you know, of service. 99% of what's on Twitter is bad for Twitter. That's Twitter right. is a cesspool. <laughs> I mean, and I have to use it for work, but it is a hellhole. So what they do, if you if you if they tweet something that they don't think is appropriate for the community, they will then do something that they call well, they don't call it shadow banning, but the community has shadow banning. And what what happens is that you still have your account but now your account does not show up in searches. And only people who see that uh, your account's tweets are people who are already following you. So people that don't follow you will never see anything showing up in searches. In addition, if any of your followers retweet one of your tweets, they won't be seen by anybody else. Wow. They just disappear. And, and the only way people will see a retweet is if they see it directly from your timeline. But, of course, you're not in any search engines, so you, you basically disappear. Everything seems to be working just fine from the shadow banned user's perspective. They can publish their tweets. They can respond to tweets. They can do everything they used to. It's just that nobody sees what they're doing. It's pretty sneaky, and, you know, and Twitter particularly does that to individuals whose political persuasion does uh-huh. not align with yeah. the yeah. Twitter culture. Yeah, exactly. Now, if you'd like to know if you're shadow banned, you can go to shadowban.eu. It's a website, shadowban.eu. You put in your Twitter handle, and they'll tell you whether you've been shadow banned. I'm checking mine right now. Okay, this is a, this. Uh, I am not banned. Oh, no, no, a no suggestion ban, no search ban, no ghost ban, no reply deboosting. But all I do is I tweet traffic. Okay, well apparently that is all right. How has Donald Trump not been shadow banned? I'm thinking. I'm thinking he's probably shadow banned. I don't know. He, but he. But uh, he already has so many he is followers. He so. He is, he is so. Uh, I don't know if they could shadow ban him because it's he's so prominent. He would go insane yeah. if they did. 
Yeah. That, I think that is something that is really they're, – they're trying to flip the needle with their political persuasion. I don't think that's really a good idea. I think that's – yeah, it's, it's dangerous. It's very dangerous. We've got an email from Charles in Rockville. Dear Doc and Jim, I've returned from vacation, and when I got home, I saw that my house had been broken into and ransacked. Man. They took almost everything, including my computers and my iPad. The police came and did some investigating, but now I'm worried about the thief getting into my accounts. I borrowed a friend's laptop and tried to log into LastPass. That, of course, is the program that maintains all your passwords. I couldn't get into my account because the thief has already changed my password to LastPass. Mm. I called the bank, and he'd already changed my password on my online account. Ooh. Luckily, wow. no money's been withdrawn. Now, I was able to use a friend's computer to change several passwords that, that, that I could still change. But my question is, do you know any way to get my master password back to LastPass? Well... There is a way to reset your password. Um, it's kind of you got to prove who you are, and so there's a LastPass uh, page that's called Recover Your Master Password. So you could just Google. I've got the link to it. it's a very complicated link, but if you just say if you just put LastPass Recover Your Lost Master Password, Google will take you right to that page. So you can you can try to go through the process to change that. But I'm thinking this guy had your LastPass uh, account for two weeks. Mm -hmm. He could have gotten all your passwords by now to everything. Yeah. I'd say you just ought to delete the darn thing. Yeah. So you can also go LastPass delete account. You go to there. And you can go through a process and, de and delete the account. And so this is one of the uh, <clears throat> disadvantages of these password managers. All your passwords are in one place. And if you lose your device, you lose all your passwords. So it is a problem with yeah. password managers. We got an email from Don in Baltimore. Dear Doc and Jim, I recently upgraded the speed of my Internet connection. However, I don't really see a difference. Is there something I can do? Is there something I've got to do to increase the speed? Or how Just because I, you increased it doesn't mean it's faster, right? Yeah. Well, they, they, they give you more throughput. They, the connect, they authorize – they go to the router. They authorize more throughput from your router to the, to the, to the node that you're connected to. They sort of – they throttle your speed at, at the router. And so they, they authorize more speed for you, but, uh, but maybe you can't get it. Okay. This is the thing, Don um, – your router has to support the increased connection speed. So, you know, frequently Internet service providers will increase speed or you'll buy a higher speed package. And, and, but, but you may not see the speed increase because in many cases to get the speed increase, you have to upgrade the modem. And if you don't upgrade the modem, you won't get the increase in speed. And maybe your Internet service provider didn't tell you that. So it could be, Don, that you've got to upgrade your modem in order to capture that additional speed. So what you want to do is go to speedtest.net, speedtest.net, test the speed, compare it with the speed that you're supposed to have. And I'd suggest do it in the middle of the night when you're not fighting other people right. on the network so, yeah. so, you, so you get the true unbridled speed. And then if it isn't what it's supposed to be, Call your internet service provider and have it check it out. It could be a bad connection, or they might tell you you've got to upgrade your modem. But I would work on it because yeah. you should get the speed that you're paying for. You absolutely should. We got an email from Susan in Alexandria. Good morning, Dr. Schertz. How about Tony Brooker, a contemporary and colleague of Alan Turing, 
Perhaps foremost among the many contributors to computer science, he developed AutoCode, the first commercially available high-level program. He would be a great suggestion for profiles in IT. Uh, also, Happy New Year to you, Jim, Andrew, Kevin, and Mr. Big Voice. Why, thank you, Susan. Susan and Alexandria. Well, thanks for the suggestion, Susan. I'll, he, that's a good suggestion. You don't I'll, know how much Doc appreciates that because uh, it's getting tough to find new people. It is. I've done, I've done over 400 profiles in IT or maybe 450, and you know. You know, and today's, I guarantee, today's will really be a blast. Uh, uh, so make sure you stick around and listen to Profiles in IT today. We got an email from June in Burke. Dear Doc and Jim, my iPhone has died on me. The battery needs to be replaced. I need to get text messages at work, iMessages. Is there a way I can get the iMessages on my Windows 10 computer so I can at least communicate with people? This is critical. Help, June in Burke. Well, June... Apple really doesn't want to share their iMessage app with other companies, so your options are slim. There is an iOS emulator, iPadium. <laughs> and what? iPadium. It's an iOS emulator. So, and and I was reading that 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 that, that, that includes iMessage. So, iPadium did not really get great reviews, but I said, well, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. So I installed iPadium last night and. Uh, it is a pretty dorky interface, and there is no iMessage on it. So, boom, mm. it's gone. So they were wrong. Like I can see why the reviews were bad. So you're really your only option to get iMessage on your machine is to set up a virtual machine in your computer's uh, window com- in your Windows c- computer operating system. Set up a, vir- a VM, virtual machine, and then install the Mac operating system there. So it it actually looks like a Macintosh computer. And then once you've got the Mac operating system on there, you can you can then activate iMessage. Now you're this is I mean it's complicated. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's really worth it. You you know, you got two options for VM machines, virtual machines. You can have the Oracle Virtual Box Manager, Virtual Box, and you've also got the VM workstation player or VMware player. And so you can pick either one of those. Uh uh, the uh, and and they they you can get them for if you if you only need it for like a month or so you the you know I think VMware comes with a free trial so you can give it a shot but you're going to have to have a copy of the Mac, Mac operating system that may cost you money if you don't if you don't have a Mac around there but you install that and you get iMessage now there's another option June that that you could have is that you could if you don't have to have iMessage you could use WhatsApp and you can there's a very easy WhatsApp Inter- web version of WhatsApp. Uh, you could use Viber, so you could get you could get the web program for some of these uh, uh, voice over IP uh, programs that also have messaging, and that that would work too. And they actually share the software, so you can install it on other machines. They're not so proprietary like Apple is with iMessage. We got an email from Scotty in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dear Doc and Jim, I've got an iPhone 11. But I've never installed antivirus software. And, you know, I hear all kinds of bad stuff if you don't have antivirus software installed. Is it okay? Or should I do something? Scotty in Fort Lauderdale. Well, the short answer, Scotty, is no. You don't need to install antivirus software on your iPhone. That's because your iPhone operating system, iOS, forces apps running on the device to run in a way that isolates them from the operating system itself. They, they like run a little sandbox. So if, so if you basically corrupt that app, it can't get at the operating system because it's got it's in a completely different portion of RAM 
no shared RAM, and it can't get at the operating system. It's it's a very safe way to uh, to run apps, and it makes the iPhone very secure. Now, it still could be possible to do it, but it's very, very difficult. And the risk of, uh, of the iPhone catching a virus is so small that it doesn't make much sense to run an antivirus app on, on one. However, if you decide to jailbreak your iPhone or iPad. Love that term. Jailbreak it so that you can install unauthorized apps. The built-in protections that I just talked about are rendered ineffective. So if you jailbreak your iPhone, you, in fact, can easily get infected with the virus. So in that case, you probably want to run antivirus. But I would recommend just don't jailbreak the phone. We got an email from Drew in Alexandria. Dear Tech Talk, I love to surf the web with the Chrome browser. Now, sometimes in my exuberance, I'll close a tab by mistake. And it's a tab I wanted to keep. And then I can't get the web page back again. Is there a way to undo closing the browser tab? I, I, I don't, I mean, it's gone. I don't know if, I don't know if that option exists, but it would certainly make life easier. Love the show, Drew and Alexandria. Well, Drew, you can reopen your browser tag. All you have to do is press three keys at the same time, Control, Shift, and T. Control, Shift, T. T stands for tab. Control, Shift, T. That combination will reopen the last tab that was closed. And if you press Control, Shift, T again, through three keys going down at the same time, you'll reopen the tab that was done before that, and you can keep going back in the tab. So that's a very, very convenient. By the way, this works on all major browsers, just not Chrome. Now, there are some more shortcuts that are pretty nice. Suppose you want to delete all the cookies that have been stored on your browser because you just don't like to share that stuff. You want privacy. All you have to do is hit Control-Shift-Delete, and that will delete the cookies that have been stored in the browser. You can hit the Control key plus the Plus key, Control-Plus, and you'll zoom in the page, or else you'll make the text bigger. You can hit Control plus the minus key, and you'll zoom out and you'll make the, or make the text smaller. And if you hit Control plus F5, you will force your browser to load a fresh copy of the current page. You see, a lot of times web pages are stored in a cache uh, somewhere on the web, or maybe they're stored in cache right on your computer if you keep going back to the same web page, and it will pull the web page from cache rather than going to the actual actual web page itself to get the latest copy of it. And if you want to, and some pages that change quickly, you really want to get the latest copy. So if you hit control F5, you've got the latest copy. We got an email from Virginia in Fairfax. Virginia. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we got from Virginia in Fairfax, Virginia. Yes. Dear Tech Talk, I forgot my Wi-Fi password. My Windows 10 computer logs onto my computer automatically, but now I have a second computer and I need to connect to the router. Is there a way to discover the password that's stored in my first computer? That would really be convenient. Virginia in Fairfax, Virginia. Well, <laughs> well, Virginia, it, it is easy to, easy to forget a Wi-Fi password. Um, and uh, since all your devices log onto it automatically, you don't have to enter, enter it in each time. But luckily, with Windows, there's a way to recover that password so you can read it. So what you want to do is open up the... Um, Open up the control panel from the drop-down menu, and you just you could search. You could go to the search box, put in control panel, come up. Then you want to click on network and internet, and then you want to click on network and sharing center, 
and then you want to click on View Active Circuits Networks, and then click on a box called Wi-Fi Status. Then you click on Properties of that box, and then you select the Security tab. And the Security tab has the password there, but it's all stars. But there's a little checkbox there, and if you can put the checkbox that says Show Characters, there will be your password in all of its glory. So if that was a little quick for you, when I post the uh, the show uh, the the show transcript on Monday, you'll be able to read that and get right to it. Or you could just or you could just go there and play around with it, and you'll you'll find it. It's under the security tab under network properties, and just uncheck and check the box so you can see what's there. And that's all there is to it. And so you you can easily recover your password from a computer that is remembering your password. We got an email from Alice in Alexandria. Dear Doc and Jim, help. Whoa, my taskbar is on the right side of the screen. <laughs> yeah, I hate when that happens. How do I move the taskbar to the bottom? I can hardly use my computer. <laughs> well, Alice, a lot it's of people. It's easier than you think. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize, but the taskbar can, can be placed anywhere. It can be put on the and left, the right, or the, the top. She probably moved it by accident, right? That's probably. Because I've done it before. I'm like, well, how did I do that? I know. She's sitting there with her uh, with her, uh, with, with her monitor on its side so she can. <laughs> <laughs> she's turned the monitor on its side so so she's got it on the bottom. Uh, you know, that, that's but just, then everything else is sideways. Everything, yeah, that's just that's really not really a good uh, a good method to do that. So no. it, it turns out you can just drag the um, you can just drag that around. So what you want to do first of all, you you, you want to right you want to go to the taskbar itself wherever it's located. Right click on it in an area that's not used. Right, and then you want to. Make sure that lock the taskbar is unchecked. Otherwise, it won't move. So you want to uncheck lock the taskbar. Uh, task I'm here to the help. Taskbar. Thank you. Then what you want to do? Find another place on the uh, on the taskbar that's not used by an icon. Hold down the left key of your mouse and then just drag it where you want. And you can just drag it from the right side down to the bottom and drag it anywhere. And then it'll, it will just move. You can just drag it down to, the, to another side. It's, it'll only be on four positions, up, down, left, right. And then once it's moved, then you want to right-click on it, and then you put lock the taskbar, and then you're guaranteed that you won't move it by accident. So that's all you have to do. Um, and we get a good idea to lock it once you put the, put it down there, Yeah, right? yeah. After you put it down there, lock it, and then you won't move you it by mistake. Yep. Yeah, sometimes people just sort of get a little exuberant with their mouse, and they, they move the taskbar, and they don't know they don't know what they did. I've done it all the time. I was like, what did I do? We got an email from Eric in uh, Springfield. Dear Tech Doc, I've got a number of ring devices in my house. i got a doorbell. I've got cameras all over the place. I'm worried because I've heard that many of these devices have been hacked and people can view the cameras remotely. What can I do to protect my family's privacy, Eric in Springfield? Well, Eric, this is a problem, and there have been a lot of, of Ring devices that actually have been hacked by, by people looking around. Now, when I checked into it, Amazon said their central servers were not hacked. Most accounts were hacked because users used the same password everywhere. So what happened was user, you know, so they just used a known password that you had been using somewhere else on the Ring device, and and they logged right in, or else it was a weak password. And so most of the hacking that's gotten to the Ring devices is because of poor password management on the part of the user. Mm. So 
if you fear that somebody may have uh, secured, you know, that your password may be compromised, you could change your password easily. Just You can just go to the – basically go to the Ring website, log in with your account. You can change the password. Now, I would recommend that you activate uh, two-factor authentication. So that way, even if they have your password, they can't log into the Ring device. So what you want to do, and what if you have two-factor authentication, what happens is that every time you log into the Ring account, it will send a text message to your phone, your mobile phone, and maybe it might be six digits. I'm not sure. Typically, they're six digits. And then you have to then take that six-digit code and put it back into the website, and it won't let you log in until you provide the correct six-digit code. And that means you've got two-factor authentication, the password plus the temporary six-digit code. That way, even if somebody has your password, they're not going to get into your account because they don't have your cell phone. So you can easily go to the Ring's, Ring, uh, Ring, web, Ring uh, website and go to your account, and you go to a section called Extra Security. And then you... And then what you want to do, you want to turn on the link that enables extra security, and then you will want to enable two-factor authentication. Now, once you put in your phone number for the two-factor authentication, they're going to send you a text message, and you have to put in the code to verify that, that you actually have the phone. And then once you do that, it's set up, and your Ring account should be secure. Listen, we love, love, love your emails. Email us at techtalk at stratford.edu and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. It's Saturday morning. You're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network. 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2 and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. And you can watch us do the program by downloading the Periscope app to your device and following us at WFED Tech Talk. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. More of Tech Talk Radio, presented by Stratford University, coming up in a moment. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Welcome back to Tech Talk Radio. We're in the virtual faculty lounge at Stratford University talking technology. And now it is time for... Profiles in IT. Yes, today we're going to feature Alessandro Volta. 
He's an Italian physicist who is best known as the inventor of the electric battery. And what else? And the discoverer of methane. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A little, ex- little excess methane How'd in How'd you here. go there? <laughs> wow, what a mess. Yeah. One of the biggest causes of global warming, that source of methane. It right is there. indeed, yes. Of course. Now, Volta, Volta was born in Como, uh, Italy. On February 18th, 1745. And, uh, you know, this is up in... Let's North- reiterate, 1745. Yes. And this is Profiles in IT. 1745, inventor, inventor of the battery. In, se- in 1774, he became a professor of physics. This is why I like this guy. At the Royal School in Como. A year later, he improved on the electrophorus. It's a device that produces static electricity. He was, like, really focused on electricity back then. In the years between 1776, that's a famous year, and 1778, Volta studied the chemistry of gases. He he discovered methane after reading a paper by Benjamin Franklin on flammable air. (laughs) In 1776... He found methane at Lake Maggiore, and by 1778, he managed to isolate methane. See, so 1776 is very important to this country, but it's also when he found methane. I was going to say that year was a real blast, wasn't it? Was it was a real blast. Uh, he, he ignited the methane by an electric spark in a closed vessel. That doesn't seem like a good idea. No, it doesn't sound like a good idea. No, I hope <laughs> Now, Volta also studied what we call electrical capacitance, and he developed a means to study voltage and charge. So it turns out if you put two parallel plates together and put positive charge on one side and negative charge on another, you'll get a voltage between the plates. So he basically was able to relate the measured voltage with the charge, and, he, and it was called Volta's Law of Capacitance. Mm. See, back then, voltage, of course, wasn't called voltage. It would be electropotential, but electropotential then was named after Volta. I was going to ask So now we this. call it voltage. Volts, voltage and volts, right? Yeah, that was all named after him, but that was just electropotential back then. Uh, in 1779, he became a professor of experimental physics at the University of Pavia, in, 177, in 1780, okay, this is the critical part of the story. Now mm-hmm. listen to this. <laughs> Luigi Galvani had shown that the legs of frogs hanging on iron or brass hooks would twitch when touched with the probe of a, some other type of metal. He thought this response was caused by animal electricity from within the frog. <laughs> okay, let me ask, let me stop you for a sidebar. Were the legs still attached to the frog, or were they? These were dead frog legs. I'm taking. It. They were dead. I don't okay. know. I, they'll it will work attached or de- disattached. <laughs> but the thing is, but what he did, he he. But felt, the frogs were dead. Is yeah, the point? But he thought he thought there was still some sort of residual life in them because they could twitch whenever you would touch them with the probe. Mm-hmm. And he went around doing this on uh, doing this on dead bodies. And, oh, my and, and, and he would God. put two probes on it, and, he, and he'd get a guy I could open. Oh, or, 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 and so, and so they, 
So people were thinking this is like an indication that there may still be a spirit there within the body. No, sorry. So so anyway, they and he you know he got a lot of notoriety, Luigi Galvani, but. Alessandro Volta said, I do not think there is animal electricity. I think it's coming from the electrodes themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, Volta was impressed with Galvani's findings, but he thought he got the current because there were two different types of metal. So so the two types of metal were, were an accident, it seems, yeah, it right? Yeah, it was an accident. It was completely an accident. It was completely an accident. That's right. And so what, what uh, Alessandro Volta did... He took stacks of uh, silver and zinc. Those, so he chose two metals, silver and zinc, and they, he put silver and zinc discs, and then he put layers of cloth or paper soaked in salt water between them, and he stacked up these discs. We so made a, what they call a pile of these things, P-I-L-E, and, um, and then he could measure a volt, electropotential from, be, be, from one end to the other, and it was caused by the difference in the metals. And it turned out that with the frog legs, the frog legs was simply serving as the salt water, the conductor between right. the electrodes. The wire. The wire. Yeah, it was the it was the it was the solution that would allow charge to travel from one metal to the other. Because in in a battery, the electron leaves one metal and goes to the other metal because one metal has has a different potential. It it, it, it the metals are different and it takes more voltage to extract the charge from one metal than the other metal. And the difference in the in the voltage that it takes to extract the charge is really the voltage that the battery will see. It's the difference between the two electrodes. So the at the anode, the electrode reacts with the electrolyte and produces electrons, which are going into the solution. These electrons accumulate at the other uh, at the other contact, which is called the anode. Uh, at the cathode, another chemical reaction occurs simultaneously that en enables the electrons to to escape to accept electrons. So the uh, and so uh, electrons leave the cathode and they go to the anode. Now each of these reactions has a particular standard potential, as they say, and the difference between the standard potential is the voltage produced by the battery, and then the salty water is just the electrolyte. The electrolyte can be a liquid, a gel, a solid substance, whatever allows the movement of charged ions. He described his findings to the Royal Society of London in 1800, and Napoleon was very impressed, and he gave him a, a big award, and because of the battery, the volt, the electropotential as he was measuring, the volt is named after Volta. Interesting. Now, actual, there's actually evidence of batteries dating back to 150 B.C. in Mesopotamia. The Parthian culture used a device known as the Baghdad battery. I think that's a wrestling move as <laughs> well, a, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> the Baghdad. It, it was made of copper and iron electrodes, which were stuck in vinegar or citric acid. This, these were basically used for religious ceremonies where they would use that voltage to do something. I, don't know what, <laughs> I would love to know what you would use voltage for in a religious ceremony. I, I really have no Cause idea. conversions, perhaps? It could be conversions. That's right. Oh, you know, okay, here you go. Just put your hands on this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that, but but they, did, they didn't really view it as a big invention of a battery, but 
but when they went back and did the research, it was the Baghdad Battery, 150 BC. Uh, 150 I may BC. have to look up the Baghdad Battery. That's right. Now, in 1809, Volta became an associate member of the Royal Institute of the Netherlands. In honor of his work, Volta was made a count by Napoleon Bonaparte in 1810. So now it's Count Alessandro Volta. Volta retired in 1819 to his estate in Como, Italy. And his estate is now named Camnago Volta in his honor. He died March 5th, 1827, just after his 82nd birthday. Volta's remains are buried in the Camnago of Volta, where he lived. And hopefully, Luigi Galvani is not doing any testing on his remains. I hope they're just letting him remain rest in, in peace. Rest in peace, yes. Uh, interesting. So, you know, I guess, the, so where we've come from there is the experimentation between the different types of metals. Is that how we've that's been his, able to make batteries it. better? Make them better. Yeah. So, they, so like the, the, the most recent improvement in the lithium-ion battery, that they, they do lithium cobalt oxide. So they added cobalt to the lithium, and that and that basically made it uh, increase the energy density of. That's what the guy got the Nobel Prize for. So we're just changing basically the the metals. Yeah, the uh, the yeah your and the medium of storage, I guess, is probably changed because I would imagine these original batteries were really pretty big, right? right? Yeah. So the so the so the cathode is lithium ion oxide, and then the anode is just carbon or something like that. Mm-hmm. So. So they're, they're they're making better cathodes uh, in these in these batteries and uh, the lithium ion batteries you might have a gel or you 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 might have a, a liquid you know to, to to carry the ions but yeah they're just trying to improve it a little bit a little bit at a time but it all goes back to Alessandro Volta when he realized that it was be the difference in the electropotential between the two metals. I wonder if it was what it was that finally got batteries into regular usage. Maybe it was the the packaging, the the, the portability of it possibly and and then how they were these things were actually packaged because I'd love to see what some of these original batteries were housed in. It's probably glass, right? Don't you yeah, think? Yeah, probably glass. And they they also were using a lot of sulfuric acid. Uh so the um, it probably was driven by applications, you know, because back back in the day, I mean, people didn't have cell phones. We didn't, right. We, we didn't we didn't have electric motors. We didn't have starters. So there, I don't think they, there was really a big application for the battery. So was late 1800s, 1900s, when we first started having machines and things like that, right? Yeah. That, that, yeah. Interesting. So, so sort of the the basic science came first, and then the broad, the wide scale distribution of that was based on the application. It's Saturday morning, and you're listening to Tech Talk Radio, heard on Federal News Network, 1500 AM, 1035 FM HD 2, 1039 FM HD 2, and in Loudoun County on 104.5 FM. Online at federalnewsnetwork.com. Learn more about Stratford University by going to stratford.edu. In the next three years, there will be 3.5 million unfilled cybersecurity jobs. How can you make that work for you? Stratford University offers everything you need to succeed, from certifications to bachelor's and even master's degrees in cybersecurity to prepare you for a rewarding career in today's most lucrative and sought-after field, cybersecurity. Stratford has seasoned IT faculty, well-equipped labs, and real-life scenarios to help you achieve practical solutions to today's newest challenges. And Stratford 
Stratford makes a cybersecurity career reality with accelerated classes, year-round program starts, and both on-campus and online options to fit your busy schedule. All disciplines are offered, including digital forensics, networking and telecommunications, and our full line of degrees, including a master's in cybersecurity. Find the future of you with a future in cybersecurity. Go to stratford.edu slash cybersecurity today. That's stratford.edu slash cybersecurity. If it's technology, it's Tech Talk Radio. IT trends, software, the Internet, and IT careers. Here's Dr. Richard Schertz of Stratford University with Tech Talk Radio. Live from Washington, it's the Stratford University Pop Quiz with Andrew Mitchell. The security guard at the front desk, featuring Mr. Big Voice, with musical guest, the Stratford University Junkyard Band, and your host, Jim Russ. Thanks for tuning in this Saturday morning and listening to Tech Talk Radio. It is time to play the pop quiz. In Profiles in IT, we just finished talking about Alessandro Volta an 18th century Italian physicist and the inventor of the electric battery. Volta also discovered this. That's today's question. What else did he discover? Well, I hope that's enough of a clue to spark your memory. If you know the answer to today's question, now's the time for you to pick up your phone and give us a call. If you're dialing from west of the Rockies, it's 877-936-9333. Calling from east of Playa del Shirts, Virginia, 877-936-9333. If you're having a blast in Canada, call us on the wildcard line, 877-936-9333. Anyone else anywhere else may call us on the international line, 877-936-39333. Now, once again, here's Dr. Richard Schertz. You always hear about air traffic controllers and how the air traffic controllers are basically causing a, a traffic jam in the sky. Well... The interesting thing about air traffic controllers, we're basically using uh, World War II technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're using radar right. to track the planes, just the same way Britain tracked the incoming planes from uh, from Germany, by radar. Now, cars all have GPS systems. I was going to say, we're much more technically advanced on the ground. I mean, my son's got a GPS system on his racing bike. I saw this thing in a couple of days ago in a catalog, GPS for dogs. To track your hunting dogs. Good Lord. And it will tell you whether they're sitting, standing, or moving. So what we have now in the, in the, in the air traffic control system is a system that really can't grow. Uh, can't grow. Robert Sturgill, FAA's deputy administrator, told the Senate committee last month that the current system cannot handle the projected traffic demands expected by 2015. What is actually happening now, it takes, uh, for instance, uh, about 36 seconds to get a fix on an airplane with radar. Now, at 500 miles an hour, that means a plane has traveled <laughs> five miles right. before you locate them. So in order to keep the planes from running into each other, they're separated horizontally by five miles mm-hmm. and vertically by three miles. Now, the, the, the pilots don't have any information about planes around them. All the data goes back to the traffic controller who looks at this radar screen and he says, uh, Pilot A, would you move up a little bit? Pilot B, move down a little bit. And everybody is just following these guidance. Now, 
there are, there's a new system out there that they're trying to implement, the next generation uh, system for air traffic control, which uses GPS. It's a real simple idea. Every plane has GPS. It gets their GPS coordinates. It transmits to the control tower as well as to all the aircraft in the area its uh, flight number, the, the flight information, as well as its location. Every airplane has an air traffic control display on it, and you can see all the other airplanes in the area. Guess what? You can do your own traffic control. You can do your own guidance. You can do your own spacing, and you can get the planes closer together, and you don't have to have this centralized system that we have now. That's the so-called ADS-B. It's called the Automatic Dependent Surveillance Broadcast System, and uh, FAA is trying to get funding for this thing to get uh, to, to get going, and you know, as uh, FAA is want to do, they're a little bit slow getting off the stick here, and so people are criticizing them. Some of the some of the airplanes are installing it on their own; they're just not waiting for the FAA. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, UPS Airlines, uh, which you know, they cargo carriers, they have already equipped 300 of their planes uh, with this ADS-B technology. They're expecting that they can save almost 800,000 gallons in fuel annually because they'll be able to have more efficient approach paths. And that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. It's going to pay for itself. Southwest is going to install a similar system next year. They're expecting to save a lot of money. We all want FAA to get off the stick. I think the airlines could pay for it. The skies could be a lot. Safer. safer and to keep uh, flight costs down and maybe bring down some ticket prices. That's right. Did you ever wonder how GPS works? Absolutely. Well, it turns out GPS stands for Global Positioning System. It's a worldwide navigation system which is formed from a constellation of 24 satellites and five ground stations. Now, these 24 satellites are actually uh, operating at, a, at an orbit which is at a 55-degree angle from the equator so that they cross over the uh, North American hemisphere. These, these uh, 24 satellites are called NAVSTAR. They were made by Rockwell International. Each satellite weighs 1,900 pounds. NAVSTAR is also my vanity plate. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, Navstar. You're cool, man. You're really cool. You know, now I you know I never thought of that. <laughs> I bet the chicks really dig that, huh? Oh yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> 17 feet with the solar panels extended. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Navstar over there. That's right. Mm-hmm. They have an orbital period of 12 hours. <laughs> And they have a lifespan of 7.5 years. I'm trying to move on as fast yeah, as okay. I can. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll knock it off. I'm sorry. <laughs> they, they have ground stations in Hawaii, Ascension Islands, Diego Garcia, Kwajalein, I don't know how you pronounce that, and Colorado, and Colorado Springs. Sounds good to me. Now, what they do, you need three satellites to triangulate to get your position. Triangulation. Triangulation mm. to, get, to get your position. <laughs> And so, but then if you want to triangulate, you have to have the exact time, which means you need an atomic clock in your receiver, which is very expensive. He needs some water. What you get him? I think he's been, he's been... Coffee. I got coffee. Been, uh, that's the that's problem. Right. I think we've found the problem. Take the coffee away. That's right. <laughs> and so... The time is a problem because you need a very expensive receiver to have accurate time. Well, they discovered if you have a fourth satellite, mm-hmm. you can derive the time from it. 
So if you but use four satellites... Four satellites? What happens at the triangulation? <laughs> it's, a, it's a quadrangulation. Oh, okay. oh wow. <laughs> See, it's spatially triangular. And so with the fourth satellite, you can derive the time, and that allows you to have an ultra-cheap GPS sensor without, and it gets the time from the satellites. So if you ever uh, are in your car, you notice it takes off the GPS to turn on. You've got to lock in on four satellites. Once you lock in on four, four satellites out of the 24... Normally, nine are in the horizon. When I've tracked them, I've seen up to eight. Because I, I have a little system that tracks the GPS satellites. And I can, I've seen up to eight or nine at one time. Mm-hmm. But you only need four to really do it. So there's all you wanted to know about. Probably more than you wanted to Probably know. Probably more than you wanted to know. know about well, GPS. We're running a little short, so we're going to take a final break. Dr. Shirts, Jim Ross, and Navstar. <laughs> we'll be right back after this. Let's talk about com- computer glitches caused by cosmic rays. Okay, you know, as you know, our computer chips are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I know this because I hang with you. Yeah, they get this, yeah, getting, and so now it turns out now that they become very sensitive to cosmic rays. So, so you, you so you have high, high energy neutrons which are streaming through the atmosphere, and occasionally they'll actually hit something in the chip. They'll, mostly they go through the chip, but occasionally they'll hit something in the chip. And when they do, they could flip a bit. You know, it could you know the bit could be a zero, and it could be flipped to one. So you get bit flipping caused by cosmic rays. It doesn't happen often, but it happens often enough. Like sometimes your your computer crashes or your iPhone freezes. It could be cosmic radiation. Mm. So so instead of thinking that you've done something really stupid, blame it on cosmic, on cosmic radi- radiation. radiation. Wow. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. Now, while harmless to living organisms, a small number of these particles have enough energy to interfere with the operations of microelectronic circuitry. Now, the consequences can be trivial, just as altering a single pixel in a paragraph, or as serious as bringing down a passenger jet. For instance, uh, let me give you a couple of examples where they have they think they see evidence of a bit flip. This is called a single event upset. In SEU. It was blamed for an electronic voting machine error in Belgium back in 2003. A flipped bit in the electronics voting machine added an extra 4,000 votes to the candidate. Actually, wow. it, was, it was 4,096. So you can tell that's, that is an even multiple of, of two to the n power. And so it turns out they just flipped one bit. And they added 4,096 votes to one candidate. And you knew that just by looking at that number, right? Yeah, yeah. You did. I Back did. off, man. I'm I a did. scientist. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the thing is, the reason they noticed this error is that 4,096 votes is actually more than the total population of the town. So they knew something was something right. Something was not right, yeah. yes. Now, in October 7th of 2008, an Airbus... A330, operated by Qantas Air, was en route, en route from Perth to Singapore. At 37,000 feet, one of the plane's three data initial reference units had a failure, causing incorrect data to be sent to the plane's flight control system. This caused the plane to suddenly severely pitch down, throwing unrestrained occupants into the plane's ceiling. Wow. I saw a picture of it. The, the tile in the ceiling was broken. They got Because people hit the ceiling yeah, so hard. Yes, hmm. it was like, you know, the... All potential causes were found to be unlikely or very unlikely, except for the cosmic ray bit flip. 
Now, Cisco was researching cosmic radiation since 2001 and briefly cited cosmic rays as a possible explanation for data losses in their ASR 9000 routers. So as we get smaller and smaller chips and become more and more sensitive to cosmic radiation, this is going to become a big problem. Now, what they're doing in navigation systems to make them safety, they basically have redundant systems. They might have three redundant systems, and they vote. If one of them has a, has a bad answer, they two have to agree. So as long as they've got redundancy of three and they do a vote, and as long as two agree, that's, majority what, that's wins. what the majority wins. And it's it's highly unlikely that you would get a bit flip in more than one device at the same time. So they so in mission-critical systems, they're having to do this, and this is be, going to become a bigger and bigger problem. Now, think about this. This also indicates that we're very susceptible to electromagnetic pulses. And so now it could be possible in war times of war to come in and um, set up an EMP bomb that sets, this imp- sets out a huge electromagnetic pulse and it just blows out all the chips. Yep. They're so sensitive. So as we become more and more dependent on electronics, things like this become a bigger and bigger problem. This is the kind of stuff I listen to Tech Talk Radio for. Yes, there you go. There so you there go. go. So bit flip. There you go. A cosmic bit flip. Cosmic but, bit flip. But the nice thing is, now, anything that goes wrong in your computer, you just say, blame it on the cosmic. It was a you know cosmic what? bit flip. <laughs> if something seizes up at work, I'm going to find the engineer and say, you know what? I think I suffered a cosmic bit flip in the uh, studio. That's, that's right. And we'll see how they look yeah, at me. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how they go 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 on with that. Well, let's, since voting is coming up, we'll talk a little bit about voting. Yeah. Hackable wireless voting machines. Somehow, we are just hooked on these things. And so what, what is happening after the Russian hackers made an extensive effort to infiltrate American voting apparatus in 2016, some states moved to restrict Internet access to their voting machines. Well, that was smart. You keep them off the web, then the, then the Russians can't hack them. Now, there was no evidence that they actually changed any votes. Now, Colorado got rid of barcodes used to electronically read ballots. California tightened its rules on electronic voting machines that go online. Ohio bought new voting machines and deliberately made them so that they could not go wireless. On I think the, Maryland has, has gotten out of the uh, the electronic voting business for now. Yeah. On the other hand, Michigan went a different direction. They authorized spending $82 million for machines that are strictly connected with wireless modems to the Internet. Colorado? No, Michigan. 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 Okay. And the state officials said, well, yeah, because we want to get, you know, we want to get up-to-the-date, minute-by-minute voting results so that people can keep up with what's going on. Uh, but those machines are vulnerable. The problem, the problem is connecting election machines to the public Internet, especially wirelessly, leaves the whole system vulnerable. Now, Michigan's new Secretary of State's considering using some of the state's $10 million in federal funds to rip out these modems before the March presidential election. It's not March. Oh, yo, oh that's the, the, those the are the primaries. primaries. Those are the yeah. primaries, yeah. Now, Michigan says its votes are safe from hackers since the election system only connects to the Internet only after the votes are counted. But cybersecurity experts differ. They say, look, they can change the, the vote count. The vote's done. They'll just change the vote count. Mm-hmm. Now, some officials look, re, c- remain committed to wireless thing, and 11 states are using wireless voting machines. That's it for this week. See you next week for more Tech Talk Radio on Federal News Network. Tech Talk Radio is sponsored by Stratford University. For more information on courses at Stratford University, call 1-800-444-0804. Thanks for listening to Tech Talk Radio Online.